Hello, family. I know I speak for us all when I say that I earnestly desire to be able to worship and fellowship with each one of you safely. I hope that time comes soon, and I can't wait for it. But I am very thankful for our elders' uh, caution and concern for uh, the flock, especially ones that are high risk during this time. Until then, I'm thankful that we have this avenue to look at the scripture and search them together and learn more about God. If you would, uh, let's say a prayer before we get started, if you'd bow with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you today thanking you for this opportunity to search your word and gain more insight about you and what you've done for your people in the past. And Father, may we take the lessons that you would want us to learn from it and impart them upon our lives and gain more of a stronger faith in you. Thank you so much for your son, the reason why this is all possible, that sacrifice and, and that gift of salvation, that hope of heaven. Thank you, Father, for that. Through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, we just ended the spring quarter with Bob Lawrence teaching. I want to thank him for doing that. And we're entering into our summer quarter, which is going to be covering Hezekiah and limitations. Jeremiah and limitations, excuse me. Uh, Jeremiah. So talking about Jeremiah, I'd like to, before we get into the uh, scripture, if you'd actually turn to Jeremiah with me, uh, I'd like to kind of give a idea of what the... Um, environment Jer uh, Jeremiah would be coming into during this time. So the book of Jeremiah is the longest, most detailed account of any other Old Testament prophet. It, it, he was called not only to prophesy about Judah, but also to prophesy about 20 different uh, other countries and cities. We read, we'll read, we be reading about that in chapter 25, verse 18 through 28. He prophesied for more than 40 years, and it ranged from both individual prophecies to uh, large international groups. So Jeremiah was from Anathoth, which is about three miles northeast of Jerusalem uh, in the land of Benjamin. When Israel, uh, being led by Joseph, was conquering lands in the Promised Land, they came to Anathoth. That was given to the priests for a city. Now, there's no indication that Jeremiah is a, uh, is a priest, but we read in the first chapter in the first verse that his father was. Jeremiah had started uh, prophesying in Judah during the reign of Josiah. Now, Josiah reigned about 31 years uh, from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. And we read that in chapter uh, 1, verse 2. We'll read that here in a minute that uh, Jeremiah started prophesying in the 13th year of his reign. So Josiah was about 21 years old at that time when Jeremiah started prophesying. His father, Jer Josiah's father, Ammon, was wicked and was only king for two years until he was conspired against and killed. Now those responsible were gathered together and were killed by the people, and they put Josiah in place of king. At that time, Josiah was eight years old. Obviously, somebody was teaching Josiah and guiding him correctly um, because it says that he was a good king during that time. Now, uh, not only that, but you'll see Josiah's reaction 
in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 8. Um, it was during his 18th year of reigning, so he was about 26 years old. When a high priest found a book of the law in the house of the Lord and had a scribe read it to Josiah. Josiah tore his clothes because he was so emotional about it, uh, because of the violations that were still occurring against God. Uh, so he reformed even further. And I'd like us to turn over to 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25, just to see what kind of king Josiah was. And that's 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, and with all of his soul, and with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him rise after. So he was uh, a great king, and one of the best from the way it reads. Now, he was ruler during the downfall of Assyria. The last great Assyrian ruler died about 627 BC. Nineveh fell to the Babylonians and the Medes about 612, 612 BC. Now the Assyrians at this time were already on the decline, the Babylonians on the rise. Egypt, who was a ally to Assyria, went up to go assist them while they were fighting. Now Nineveh had already fallen but Egypt was still trying to help the remnant of Assyria fight off the Babylonians and the Medes. Now Josiah made the mistake of trying to stop the Egyptian advance to go assist the Assyrians. Pharaoh Necho sent the uh, second sent uh, communications to Josiah saying, "There's no issue with us. We're not here to attack you. We're just going through your land to go help the Assyrians." And um, he even said, Veronico said, that he was sent by God. That's a case G in the Bible, which is interesting, not uh, lowercase g. But Josiah didn't listen, and he thought that this was his chance to help with the Assyrian um, demise. And so he resisted the Egyptians going through their land. And during the battle, Josiah was struck by an arrow uh, in the battle near Megiddo which we talked about before, Megiddo is a highly strategic location in that area, uh, in that whole area. Even the Assyrians, when they attacked, had to go through that area along with the Babylonians and the Egyptians. So obviously the Egyptians won that battle and then continued on to try to help the Assyrians. Now, that Josiah was killed about 609 B.C., and we read about that instance in Second Chronicles chapter 35, Verses 20 through 24. In 605 BC, so just four years later, the Egyptians were dealt a devastating uh, defeat at Carchemish, which um, led to the Babylonians controlling that area, that region, and led to the first deportation, which included Daniel. We read about that in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Now, at the death of Josiah, all of Judah mourned. You know, Israel's already taken captive uh, at that point. They were taken captive um, almost about 100 years, if not, probably less than 100 years, 50 to 100 years before. And so uh, all of Judah mourned the death. And even Jeremiah was there. 
and he led a lament. Josiah was the last of the righteous kings. There were four kings after him, and Jeremiah prophesied through all of them. They were morally corrupt and hastened Judah to be brought into Babylonian captivity, which lasted 70 years. So continuing through the next four kings, there's Jehoaz, who ruled three months, Jehoiakim, who reigned uh, 11 years, Jehoiachin, who reigned three months, and Zedekiah, who ruled for 11 years. And his reign ended at 586 B.C., which is when Jerusalem was uh, completely obliterated and Judah was broken apart. 20, 20 years, though, after Jeremiah started prophesying. Um, in fact, let's turn to Jeremiah 36, because this is um, showing us the reason for all the collection of his prophecies that, were hap- that happened beforehand throughout that 20 years' time. Let's turn over to uh, Jeremiah 36. And in chapter 36, as soon as I can get there. It's going to just be verses 1 through 2 that we're going to be reading here. So it says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah from, uh, and concerning all the nations from the first day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. So all 20 years. All the uh, prophecies he spoke to that, that, that 20 years. Now, um, it goes on to tell us in this section, and we're going to obviously be getting to this point later on in the, in the quarter, but that the reasons why he, it's because he's calling them to repent. He's, he's going to be using those prophecies to talk to his people and try to convince them to repent. Um, and we'll be seeing later on how that's received. And obviously we're going to stop here and we're not going to go into it right now. Um, but it is interesting to see what happens when that, when that occurs, when the, his message um, is delivered. <clears throat> So we see the reason why it was put together. God wanted him to put that together for, for that, again, that purpose of trying to um, call his people to repentance. If we look at the date, we see that um, it's after Babylon has already risen in power and has taken over. Uh, they haven't completely taken over yet and destroyed everything. Um, so he's trying to get Judah to repent before it's too late, before that pushes Babylon into that uh, that point, uh, that breaking point of completely taken over Judah. And again, we're going to read how his message is received. Um, There's a male named Baruch who's in here who helped Jeremiah uh, compile all his prophecies during that time and document them. And Baruch also put in information about Jeremiah just to uh, complete the uh, the book of Jeremiah. So the the composition of Jeremiah, it's it's important to know uh, that the composition is unique that um, it's not completely chronological. And, in fact, it changes from chronological to topical, so it's sometimes hard to, to keep track of. And so we'll be, need to be cognizant about that when we go through and we study Jeremiah, so we work our way through it. So uh, 
Josiah, excuse me, I'm turning back to Jeremiah, close my Bible. Josiah's son. Jehoaz. Again, he only reigned three months. Um, but then he was put into chains and taken to Egypt and never to return by um, Pharaoh Necho. During those three months, though, Jeremiah's role in Judah had changed. It changed from him being a trusted advisor to the king to uh, being persecuted and imprisoned because of the message that he brought. It didn't change. It's just, uh, of course, the, the rulers of that, of that area changed. So turning back to Jeremiah, the first Jeremiah, um, before we get into that, we see that when we will, we will be reading about Jeremiah, how, how did he end? Um, I don't like to give the ending of stories, but this is, kind of, uh, this is an unknown, so I'm going to give that to you. It doesn't say. We know that uh, Jeremiah was forced to go to Egypt by what was left of Judah after Babylon came through and, and decimated them. Uh, and it was against his will that, that, that he was forced to go there. But the date of his death, the method of his death, uh, the, any, anything else about his death is unknown. There's very stories about it, but nothing that can be confirmed. Uh, so that's something that obviously God didn't think was pertinent to the message of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah had some contemporaries at the time. Habakkuk was prophesying during that time, along with possibly Obadiah. And immediately after um, Jeremiah, uh, Zephaniah came immediately afterward. Now, Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. You hear that pretty common because of the anguish of his message and the emotions that are used in his message. He loved and felt so deeply and was so passionate um, and was so sorrowful about what was to come. Uh, that he, he said he uh, said that he desired to have more tears to shed like rivers day and night because of their shame. And we read that in chapter 9, verse 1 through 2, when we get there. There's even a point where God told him, actually, God told him three times, he told him not to pray for his people, that he would not hear him or them in their time of need. He even added that he would not be accepting their sacrifices, their offerings. And you see that in chapter 7, verse 16, chapter 11, verse 14, and chapter 14, verse 11. So through uh, Jeremiah's intense passion for his people, we can see God's desire for his people, God's passion for his people, uh, reflected through him. God pleads for his people to repent, to draw near to him, or suffer the consequences and suffer the righteous judgment of God. We also see that same passion in Jesus in the New Testament. So Jeremiah, the interesting thing about Jeremiah is that he not only prophesied about the fall of Jerusalem, but he lived through it. Most, Even though most of uh, Jeremiah's prophecies are about Judah, Judah's need to repent and of their sin or suffer the consequences of it, he also provided hope. Uh, it's... it's um, not it's it's intermingled in there. It's not always uh, obvious. It's not always um, there, but uh, it's there's little bits and bits of it. We'll see. 
There's some messianic prophecies that are in Jeremiah, along with some prophecies of a new covenant that are also intermingled in there with his other prophecies. He also gives us further insight into who God is, how patient he is, how much he longs for, uh, again, repentance, like we talked about before. We learn about his characteristics, his expectations for his people, uh, not only people of the uh, old covenant, but expectations that were um, also established in the new covenant. We see there's there's some similarities there. Now, giving that uh, introduction, um, let's get into the word here on chapter 1. We'll read, start by reading verses, the introduction here, verses 1 through 3. So all the words of Jeremiah, son of Hikola, uh, of the priests who are of Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, and in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So you can see uh, the calling of Jeremiah, when it happened, and you also see the various times that God has called him again to prophesy, all the way up till the end, and it's pretty specific about the fifth month uh, after the exile of Jerusalem. Let's read verses 4 through 5. We learned that... um, 4 through 5 is, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. We learn that God knew him before he was formed in the womb and consecrated him before he was born. It's not the first time that we see that language. In Psalms 139, chapter 139, verses 15 through 16, and also in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 through 5, we see that same concept. And that's something definitely to meditate upon and ponder. And uh, and uh, just think about how deeply God God knows us before we're born. It um, should make us all feel very special and all very unique and, and desired by God. We also learn about who he's to prophesy to. Again, it's referred to the nations, not just Judah, but nations, all those around him, all those that we'll hear. Let's continue uh, verses 6 through 8. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And I shall command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. So we see here that uh, Jeremiah was young when he was called to prophesy. His age is unknown exactly, but it's kind of estimated to be in his teens, maybe his early 20s. You see that um, God, and I know I've brought this up before, but it happens so often. God uses people to do his will that the man that you and I would be the last one to expect to do it. A young man delivering the prophecies that he's about to uh, have to bring forward. And also, does his, his uh, response sound familiar? It um, Moses used the same excuses about not being able to speak. 
Um, and God's response to Jeremiah is, is kind of interesting. It's different from the response to Moses. Um, and God's reaction is reassurance to Jeremiah. And we'll see that in the next verses also. Let's read verses 9 through 10. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Wow. That's some pretty heavy, um, that's, a, that's a heavy mission. He, uh, that's, a, that's a lot of responsibility, for, especially for someone, anyone, but especially for someone who's young. It's especially a huge undertaking, um, undertaking with the coming climate that's about to happen in that area. And the subject of note here is that plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing, those are pretty heavy in themselves. But there's also, again, that glimmer of hope. There is to build and to plant. And that's kind of our first indication uh, of hope that's going to be weaved in through Jeremiah. Now we're going to be looking at some pretty dark pretty dark uh, prophecies that are pretty heavy prophecies that he's going to have to start out with. And so the first one's the Amunrah, the vision of the Amunrah that he has. In verse uh, 11 through 12, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said to him, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. It's kind of a strange, um, it's not something that you and I would be accustomed to. But uh, the Hebrew word for almond tree is almost the exact same uh, for watching. It's like three syllables and, and a couple different dots in a couple different places on the last syllable. Um, and so God seems to be doing a play on that. God will always be watching. He has been watching what's been going on with Judah. He's watching currently what's going on. And he's watching to execute his judgment on Judah because of what they've been doing. And also, not only that, but the almond tree also blossoms earlier than all the other trees in the area that are still dormant during that time of year. And it blossoms about January. And so... It also kind of indicates that his judgment is going to be coming uh, soon. Now on to the next uh, vision, is the boiling pot, verse 13 through 19. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, the evil would break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they will come and they will set each one on his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls around, against all the cities of, of uh, Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Now, gird up your loins, do not be, uh, sorry, gird up the loins and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. 
Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and a pillar of iron and a walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now that one's obviously pretty uh, intense imagery that we're looking at there. Uh, can you imagine a large cauldron boiling over and being poured out all the contents onto over the landscape of Judah? Um, essentially would kill everything that's living uh, in not pleasant way. And so that's the image that he sees. Now, um, verse 15, he's talking about uh, he's going to be setting kingdoms of the north, the throne, each head is thrown at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. And we talked about before how the cities then, um, the, the entrances to the cities are where people, they, they do business. That's where commercial business is done, legal business is done. That's where people of um, high stature come. That's where you get witnesses for different uh, things. He is going to be placing, uh, those people are going to be replaced by by people of the north. Uh, So they're not going to be under their own rule anymore, essentially. On verse uh, 17, gird up your loins. That's a pretty, uh, somebody says that. Uh, you know something's about to happen. He's like, tuck in your loose clothing, tighten your belt, be ready for something, whatever it might be, anything that's needed, be ready. Uh, It's kind of like the uh, on guard, you know, when you're jousting. On guard, that means get your guard up, be ready to fight, Uh, be ready for an attack, whatever it might be. Be ready for whatever you're going to be called to to do. He also tells them to not be dismayed. And that dismayed is... uh, broken, shattered, terrified. He's, he's telling him to put up uh, his defenses, be prepared um, for whatever comes. Because if he if he acts terrified before them, then God will dismay him before them. So don't be dismayed. Um, understand that God is there to support him. Otherwise, he's going to fall. Now, with God there to support him, you should be understanding that he's a he's God with God's help. He's a fortified city. He's impenetrable. He's a, you know, he's a pillar of iron and a, a walls of bronze. It's a whole land. He's able to, to defeat or repel all of these people's attacks. That brings us to chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2, here God pleads for his people to repent or else face the consequences. God's call for repentance is going to be a reoccurring theme that we're going to see. Um, he gives them numerous chances to do what's right, to follow him, to uphold that covenant that they made with him. And we're going to see um, parts of their reaction in this chapter, parts of their response. Verse 1 through 3, chapter 2. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim to the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your mouth, the love of your betrothals, the following after me in the wilderness, through the land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. He is reminding them 
of that covenant they made with God. And he's comparing it to the love of, of their youth, the vows of marriage. The loyalty God show, has shown his people, he protected them, he guided them, he loved them. Let's hear what God has to say more about his relationship in verses 5 through 7. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt? I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land, and my inheritance you made an abomination. You know, it starts by asking them why. Why? Why turn from him? Why did you turn away from him? Or turn away from me, as uh, he's saying it, obviously. Can they claim that he was unjust or unrighteous toward them? Did he not keep his promises? Verse 5 is telling about what happens when you turn from God. The people walked after emptiness, and the people became empty. They have contaminated the land that God promised them that he brought them to, making it an abomination. Now, that seems like some pretty extreme you know, language. But when you look at what's going on in this land, this promised land, the witchcraft, the sexual immorality, the idol worship, the murder, and the child sacrifices. Now, reading about the ways these child sacrifices were performed, they were heinous. Just reading about the process, it made my heart hurt. I don't know how people could have carried out, even first of all, even imagine such things, let alone have carried them out. But that's just how darkened their hearts were. Continue in verse 8. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that did not profit. So the priests, the priests didn't search for God. The people who handled the law, they didn't know God. To, to judge righteously. The rulers did not rule justly, but they again they ruled against those they ruled over, took advantage of them. There were prophets who do not look to God, but to Baal. It's hard to hear about God's promised people treating them that way. Verse 9. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons, sons, I will contend. So God in reply tells them that he's going to be contending or bringing charges toward them and their children and their children's children. Not only we suffer the consequences of our sinful choices, but so do our children and their children. So definitely something to think about and um, hopefully... Hope that be the deterrence, at the very least. Verses uh, 10 through 13. Let's read that. To cross the crosslands, the coastlands of Kittim 
and see, and send to Keter and observe closely and see if there is such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So God's pointing to Kittim and Keter, to the east and the west. Look around you. Right? Look. They are not abandoning their gods, who are nothing. Their gods are nothing. But you, who are unique, the followers of the true God, gave it up. For what? They gave up living, life-giving waters for broken, man-made objects that cannot sustain and will kill. Kill them. What imagery God uses. I'm always in awe of uh, how God does that with physical images. Uh, Things that... Using physical images, things that we can, that we understand, that we can grasp. And God uses them to describe spiritual things, which are a lot more difficult to under, for us to understand. And when that occurs, when people turn from God, there's, there's two wrongs that happen there. It's not just one action. They turn from God and to whatever that might be that is not God to follow. It reminds me of, uh, you know, recalls the, the scriptures in the New Testament that no one can serve two masters. You have to pick one or the other. It doesn't work that way where you can serve both of them. Obviously, that's in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 16. You would think that um, Judah would have seen what was going on in Israel, their demise, their destruction, their desolation, and learn from it. But they didn't. Uh, I think that's important to, to learn from others' mistakes, if possible. Verse 14 and 15. Is Israel a slave or is he a homeborn servant? Why has he become a prey? The young lions have roared at him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities have been destroyed without inhabitant. So, asking Israel if they're a slave, Israelites, if they're a slave, they were pretty prideful in the fact that they were God's chosen. They were free people. That's like asking an American if they have free freedom, if they're free. Of course, would be the answer. We're free. We're independent. That would be the expected reply also from the Israelites during this time. They were proud, too proud, which became a problem. Well, it was a problem often, but definitely later on. Interestingly enough, though, in reality... They were not. They were not free. Um, I mean, even under Roman occupation, they would say that they were free, but they weren't. They had become a political nation instead of a religious one. Let us learn from their errors. Let us not let politics affect us and take us over, and and contaminate our spiritual life. Us being religious people. Let us focus our energy into bettering ourselves 
for God into God's image and helping others do the same. Let's not search also for security in things or people of this world, but in God. Otherwise, it will bring the downfall of us. Verse 16. Also, men of Memphis and Tempanus have shaved the crown of your head. So again, he's kind of telling them about uh, shaving the crown of the head. Their their royalty, their position is being um, put down. It's not how it used to be. <clears throat> also, the men of Memphis and Tepanus, it's essentially Egypt. Memphis was its capital, and we'll see that through various verses later on. And uh, Tempanus is another city in the Nile Delta region. Obviously, it's a big city in Egypt. Interesting note is that when the Babylon, Babylonians invaded and Judah and some, of the, some men of Judah fled, the ones that carried along Jeremiah, that's where they fled to, is that city. So verse 17 through 19. Have you not done this to yourself? By your forsaking the Lord your God, when he has led you in the way, but now, what are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Therefore know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts." They have done it to themselves. They have no one else to blame. They violated the covenant they had with him and forfeited his blessings. Verse 20 through 23. For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. For, every, for on every high hill and under every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. Yet I planted you as a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into a degenerate shoots of foreign vine? Although you wash yourself with lye and with much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say I am not defiled? Have you not gone after the bales? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are swift young camel entangling her ways. I'm going to stop there. So not only the promised land was defiled, but the chosen people were defiled because of what they have done. Again, it, it compares their relationship with that of, of marriage. And the people have violated that relationship, those marriage vows. It just briefly mentions it here, but later on in chapter 2, um, and b before we get to chapter 3, then all through chapter 3, we'll see uh, more of this addressed in depth. Now, the people try to claim that they were clean and they were faithful, but that's obviously not the case. Verse 24 through 25, A wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion in the time of her heat who can turn her away? All who seek her will not become weary. 
In her mouth they will find her. Keep your feet from being unshod, and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them I will walk. Judah was wayward in her passions and wickedness. They proclaimed that they were free to roam. People now proclaim such views, viewing God's discipleship as limiting and narrow-minded for them. They don't want to be tied down with having to obey God. They have that same desire to be free, to roam where they, want, where they please. Verse 26 through 28, As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, their, excuse me, their prophets, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, and now their face, and not, and not their face, but in the time of their trouble they will say, Arise, and save us. But where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in a time of your trouble. And according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. They worshipped created things rather than the Creator. But then God taunts them about the gods they chose over him and how powerless they are. Verse 29, Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. They were blaming God for not providing or protecting them. They were blaming God for the problems they created themselves. Do we do that? Do we ask God why we are suffering the consequences for our behavior? Or to ask him to save us from the consequences of our behavior? Maybe even try. Maybe we even try to cover it up. That way we don't have to um, that way we don't have to endure the punishment for our behavior. But for what reason? To save our pride? To escape punishment? Or do we acknowledge the discipline that comes from our righteous behavior and understand that that's God's discipline? God's, God disciplining us. <clears throat> So verse 30, In vain I have struck your sons, they accepting no chastening. Your word has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. So here we see that instead of humbly accepting correction from God and learning from it, its people opposed God's word that he was sending through the prophets and killed them. Do we do that with his word? Do we dismiss it or try to explain it away? Do we use worldly logic to try to rationalize our way out of God's instructions or correction? I know I've found myself doing that before, and it's wrong. And it's something that we should not be doing. Verse 31 through 33. O generation, heed the word of the Lord. I have been a wilderness to Israel. Excuse me, have I been a wilderness to Israel? Or a land of thick darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We no longer come to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. 
how well you prepare your way to seek love. Therefore, even the wicked women, you have taught your ways. Heed the word of the Lord. He's calling them again to listen to him. He's begging them. Those details of your wedding day, are they forgotten easily? No. Remember most of the details. But yet they forgot the man that they had married? And it was not only one time, but days without number. It was not an accident or indifference for this reason to have occurred, for this to have occurred. Verse 34 through 37, and I'll be closing out chapter 2. Also on your skirts found the lifeblood of innocent poor. You did not find them breaking in, but in spite of these things, yet you have said, I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned away from me. Behold, I will enter into judgment with you, because you say, I have not sinned. Why do you go around so much, changing your way? Also, you will be put to shame by Egypt, as you were put to shame by Assyria. From this place also, you will go out with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper with them. Innocent blood is on them, even though they claim innocence. There's no defense like, the, like there could be in Exodus. And that's what that's referring to with uh, the person breaking in. Exodus chapter 22, verse 2. God will judge a righteous judgment. I understand the desire for justice in this life. It's the reason why I do what I do. We can try to be as just as possible, but that will never make injustice go away. This life is full of unfairness. But we as Christians, we have to remember our God is just. We are to ultimately leave it to God. He has the ability to discipline in this life or the next. We should be letting go of our anger, not our righteous anger, but that anger that overtakes us that is raging and boiling over that unrighteous anger, that anger that's damaging, the anger that will consume us and our loved ones. So let us put our faith in God. Let's put our trust in God. Thankfully, we serve a God that is righteous, that is just, and thankfully that's merciful. That concludes uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Jeremiah. Thank you for being here with me during this study session. Um, I would ask if any input, um, feel free to contact me. My information's on the back of the bulletin and let me know if you have any input, things to add, things I might have missed. I am always uh, growing my knowledge of God, my knowledge of scripture. So if there's, again, there's something that I overlooked, please let me know. Thank you all for this time.